Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Brenda Stockdale. As the Director of Behavioral Medicine at regional and nationally recognized cancer centers, Dr. Stockdale synthesizes relevant research into clinical practice through the design and implementation of evidence-based biobehavioral programming. Her work is nationally recognized and endorsed by leading specialists in multiple disciplines. For two decades, her programs have been implemented in major cancer centers and other healthcare organizations. In addition to her private practice, Dr. Stockdale is a consultant for corporate and healthcare organizations and developed a health psychology program for primary care settings, specializing in preventive medicine, autoimmunity, and stress-related conditions. Dr. Stockdale was the clinical assistant for the National Psychoneuroimmunology Program, Getting Well, and later as the National Program Director for ECAP, founded by Dr. Bernie Siegel. Brenda designed ECAP's first hospital-based psycho-oncology program and co-created ECAP's national retreats for people with life-challenging illness. Dr. Brenda's flagship six-week program, featured in her book, You Can Beat the Odds, has been praised by Harvard scientists, oncologists, and epidemiologists as a prescription in and of itself for maximizing one's health and the health book to read this year. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Stockdale, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carfeld Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. Brenda. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, it's great to be here and I appreciate you inviting me. Now, I've read Dr. Bruce Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief, and I know it's a big part of your work. And to me, it's so empowering because he proves that you can change the expression of your genes. And I'd love you to explain more about that. Well, certainly there's a lot that's written out there about this. Now we have a good understanding that while the DNA we inherit from our folks are that's fixed, the way it's expressed is not. So there's a coding on our genes that basically acts as an antenna and it translates uh, protein, translates what it finds into proteins that then regulate gene expression. So as geneticists explain, it's the cellular environment that regulates gene expression. So that includes, of course, as you mentioned, you know, diet, it includes toxins, uh, but it also includes 
stress. It includes the, you know, chronic job stress can cause gene expression to alter the way we were treated as children, of course, trauma. So these genetic modifiers are things that you and I are experiencing in in everyday life. So the way we're responding to stress, the way we deal with our feelings, all affects the way our genes come to life, so to speak. Uh, It's so important to know because we can make changes and, and take our power back when it comes to our health. Now, I know in your book, you can beat the odds. You say that there is hard evidence when it comes to the benefits of positive thinking. And, you know, I know many cancer patients are told to think positive. Um, and, it, and it's not always easy to do when you're, you have a scary diagnosis and you're going through tests. So what are the benefits and what are some ways to reframe our thinking? Well, I, I think you're asking a really good question here. And I think it's important to understand the benefits of negative thinking. I think we need to really look at what's happening with negative thinking because there's a binary, you know, we all talk about positive thinking. And of course, yes, there's this hard evidence. But when we look just at that one component and we miss the whole picture, we're actually creating a problem. But if we zoom out and we look at the benefits of what we might call negative thinking, we can then better grasp the way that we can handle a particular situation. So often when we're scared or we're feeling hopeless, there's a real tendency to go toward wishful thinking. And wishful thinking can lead us into cheap positivity. Um, It can feel good. (laughs) We can use it and feel a bit better but there's no real lasting change. Our beliefs have not been altered. It's like putting a Band-Aid on something when we need to get stitches. Does that make sense? It does, it does. So how do you change those beliefs? Well, first of all, we wanna look at what it is we're thinking and then what it is those thought processes might reflect. What are the beliefs that might be reflected? And this actually requires a little bit of work. It's one thing to say what our thoughts are or to recognize those, but there's an automaticity to thinking that it can wind up a bit like a plain whack-a-mole. For example, if I say to you in our culture, if I say Jack and Jill went up the hill. Yeah, there you go, right? (laughs) Row, row, row your boat. Exactly. So there's this automaticity to our thoughts. And depending on our environment, you and I are going to have these automatic thought reactions. So they're great to be aware of. But they, we want to really find out how these beliefs, or these mindsets are operational that might be behind those thoughts. So some of these thoughts are negative thinking that's not useful can just be dismissed like Jack and Jill went up the hill, you might be able to just go, yeah, okay, so what? So if we have negative thinking, we don't have to overreact to it and freak out and worry that we had a negative thought because that actually generates anxiety and it can promote um, more distorted thinking. 
because then people start to overanalyze and um, they get really anxious about how to drive out negative thinking. So it can be useful to say, wow, that's an interesting thought or Jack and Jill went up the hill. So what? Or there it is again. We can use the phrase there it is again. But if there's a cluster, if there's a tendency, if there's a trend, we want to know what's the mindset, what's the belief. And some of these are operational outside of conscious awareness. These are the ones that are usually the most powerful immunologically. So those aren't the ones that are usually uh, super available to us with negative, you know, identifying negative thinking. But um, mindsets and beliefs can be explored in in interesting ways, especially if we have someone to talk to about how we're seeing the challenges in our lives or how we're orchestrating ourselves around a particular um, event or a challenge, such as a cancer diagnosis. So it's really being aware of our thoughts, right? And then kind of reframing it and saying, you know, maybe is this thought true or, or stop? I don't need to think this right now, that kind of thing. Those can be useful, but we also may want to investigate. So, so let's say it's just random negative thinking that may or may not have any bearing on action you and I might take. But if it's a cancer diagnosis or we're worried, it may be a time to pause and really reflect on whether we need a second or a third opinion. It may be a time to have a deeper conversation with our health psychologist or our doctor. There may be other things going on that we need to pay attention to. And if we brush that aside to rush for, in a rush for positivity, we could lose some of the value in that negative thought. And we see this happening in relationships too, you know, where we want to believe something, but maybe there's too much, maybe there's a lot of toxicity underlying this relationship. So some of that positivity might be useful to an extent, but then it could cause us to not be looking at things clearly. So we really want this kind of clear-sighted view that helps us to investigate our options, our choices, and the way we're responding to, to the challenge, to the, you know, the way we're working with our physician or our healthcare team. Okay, got it. So you think doing this professionally is the best way to go through your program or, or talk to some, a professional to be able to do this? That can really help getting to our belief systems, but there's a lot of exercises in my book that help do this. So the program that was, that was the book grew out of a body of research that collectively shows when we practice these methods um, described in the book collectively, not, you know, one or two of them, but collectively, they actually, these methods um, lower all cause mortality they improve outcome from most any condition. And that's why behavioral medicine codes were added to insurance because they have tremendous value in changing outcome. And so when folks, for example, um, at a medical center, the leading physician got a call. Um, he'd been working with a woman who had high blood pressure. Her A1C was you know, out of whack. 
and she was overweight and they'd tried all kinds of things. And she, on her own, went through the program in my book and she called the doctor and her blood pressure had normalized. She'd lost 20 pounds and her A1C was back down. And that was from integrating all of the methods. So it doesn't always involve um, meeting with a professional, but it's important for people to kind of get underneath this because not all clinicians uh, today are up to speed on all the research. The research in this field is a head of clinical practice. So it's great to partner with someone who's willing. You might find a a, a great um, coach or counselor who's willing to do some of the homework, who's willing to do this research. And that's why podcasts like this, I think, are really important because they can open us up to what the real science is out there. And we can bring that into the practitioners we're working with and, um, and they can help partner us just a little bit better. Yes, that is so true. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to do this so people get information that they have never heard. And, you know, I was wondering, I heard you say about the insurance and I'm thinking, gosh, I never knew that, that this biobehavioral medicine is covered by insurance. How do you find out about that? How does just the average person get that? You would need to be working with a health psychologist and behavioral medicine people. Those are the folks that, that use these codes. Okay. So if you go to a psychologist, they should be able to, to help you with that. Um, well, not necessarily. I mean, most clinical, many clinical psychologists use mental health codes. They're diagnosing people with anxiety, depression, things like that. So these codes are used in integrative medicine environments um, and health psychology environments. Health psychologists will often use these codes because we're working with someone who has a physical diagnosis, but we're using these other methods to help them uh, recover. Okay. Okay. I got it. That's that's very helpful because I know a lot of people will be asking, huh, how do I get that? So we use the physical diagnosis. In other words, I don't you know, we're, we're backing away from using mental health diagnosis codes when someone has a physical illness, but many of these methods fall under the rubric of um, health psychology, biobehavioral medicine. So we're lo- you're looking for, for folks who have a good blend of clinical practice and research so that they can help folks get underneath some of the patterns and history in our lives. What's the narrative? how we can better be our own best friend so that we're not just upgrading our thoughts, but we're really upgrading our beliefs, our belief systems, our mindset. That's what really has this um, tremendous potential for positive regulation. Okay, great. Now, I know it's so important to manage stress, because when it becomes chronic, it can affect our immune system. And I'd love you to explain more about this and and maybe give us a few tips on on managing stress. Well, that's another good question because kind of like positive and negative thinking that stress has taken on that binary connotation where uh, stress is bad and relaxation is good. And it's great to understand that we need both. 
Someone could win the lottery and they could spend their life lounging, um, totally relaxed on the sofa. And that wouldn't be good for their immune system either. So, (laughs) So we need a level of stress in our lives and we want our con- conception of stress to be something that's more useful. So Kelly McGonigal at Harvard's done some really cool stuff, or I think she's at Stanford. Um, yeah, at Stanford has done some cool stuff with this, that it's so much about our perception around stress. How are we really looking at it? Are we able to reframe stress as a challenge? Are we able to see stress as exciting? or something that enhances cognition. And when we do that, it's actually changing the the chemical nature of those stress hormones. Now it still registers as those varieties of stress hormones, but they're not the kind of stress hormones that are linked with chronic inflammation. So it's, you're asking a good question because we're really teasing out the kind of stress that's more promotional of chronic inflammation. Now, when we reframe stress as something energizing or something kind of exciting, that really does help decrease inflammation. But it's the nagging, it's the nagging kind of day in and day out value that we're putting on what we're doing and our interactions that can actually seed or promote a very unhealthy kind of stress. So are we feeling like we are up to the challenge of the current situation? Are we feeling that our work is meaningful? Do we feel like we have the skills and abilities to negotiate or navigate the the challenges that we're facing in day-to-day life. So underneath this, we're looking at the idea of hardiness, of stress hardiness. And we're not so much thinking about what it is that's happening on the outside, but what kind of self-mastery you and I have on the inside so that we're looking at defining whether a situation is stressful or not, not so much because of the nuts and bolts of the narrative, but am I able to, I have within me, the mastery, the, um, am I able to interpret the situation as a turning point rather than an end point? Am I able to see a sense of control or what I can gain in terms of um, personal strengths from what's taking place right now? When we do this, it very much changes the way we're interacting with our environment and enhances our immune system. Yeah, so it's it's really about how we think about our stress then, right? It's not actually the running around the, and that's what I'm trying to figure out, you know, on a daily basis, everyone's so busy and they're trying to get everything done and your cortisol's up because you're going, going, going. But from what I hear you saying, it almost sounds like it's the way we're dealing with that, the way we're thinking about all that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, back in the 50s, there were a couple of psychiatrists by the name of Rahe and Holmes, and they called thousands of medical charts. And they came up with a list of life events, both good and bad, uh, that each was assigned a particular numerical It was given a scale. And if the total exceeded a particular threshold in a 12-month period of time, the likelihood of becoming seriously ill 
the following year was so high that this one test literally established the relationship between stressful life events and disease. And this was in the 50s. So this life event checklist, you can find it online. It's, you know, things like getting married, a promotion, relocation, death of a parent, birth of a child. And these things are things in life we can't avoid. And many are fabulous things, but it was the cumulative total of those in one year that was so predictive of serious illness. But it was about three decades later, psychologists turned their attention to a subset of individuals who, despite high numbers on that scale, did not become ill. They thought, let's study these people and see if they're different. And they were. And they found they had a collection of traits that researchers dubbed the three C's for control, commitment, and challenge. And that was that control was that sense of self-mastery, challenge, the finding the situation as a turning point, not an end point. And then, of course, commitment, the way we're committed to ourselves. And that was a grounding point because it was, of course, we know that altruism is great for our health, but this C in commitment was commitment to the self. Am I worth taking this great care? That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. So we can adopt these three C's, even if we don't have them naturally. And that's what the book is really is a collection of things that starts developing the three C's. We start off very slowly. And then each week there are tools and strategies that um, help build these three C's into a way of, of living. Yes. And I love that it starts off with control because I feel like one, I know when I went through my cancer diagnosis, that is the one thing I felt like just totally out of control. Like I had no control over my body and, you know, Oh, what happened? My body failed me. And I talked to so many other cancer survivors and work with so many and they feel the same way. So I think when you feel like you're taking action and you're doing something, you just, your whole mindset changes. Definitely. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfoldcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. Now, I know you're a big proponent of imagery, and I'd love to hear about the benefits, as well as some examples of patients that used it and, and what their outcomes were. 
Well, I think imagery is a good segue uh, in this conversation because it actually can change belief systems. So we've been talking about mindset and beliefs, which, by the way, are predictive of outcomes. So when we think about how we feel about our physician, how we feel about our medicine, uh, about the treatment plan, uh, how we feel about our future, the beliefs we hold about aging. Uh, what we, these are powerful prognosticators. So we, they've been studied, uh, they're, they're, they're amazing, but they can be slightly outside of our awareness. So when we use imagery, we're kind of cutting through some of the cognitive structure that we hold that we like to think we believe. And with imagery, we can get right down to the brass tacks because you're using your imagination in a really personal way. So if I have someone imagine their favorite vacation spot, or, or if I'm doing this in, a, in an auditorium setting, it, you know, we could have 500 people and we'll, some will be in the mountains, some might be in an airplane, you know, looking out with the clouds below them. Other people would be at the beach. Uh, so, so we're looking at the way the mind goes to create a particular visual image that has significance for that individual. So when we talk about imagery for healing, we look to the research. So this is stuff that is just highly documented. We're looking at a lot of data here, and it's focusing on just the way the brain works. Um, we may not hear a lot about it because it's not patentable. You know, no one can put it in a pill and, and, and market it. So it's just something we're born with. The Mayo Clinic newsletter had an article years ago for all their subscribers that said if people weren't taking advantage of medical imagery to start doing it for prevention and for treatment. It's free, it works, and it's, it's just super effective. Oh, so what are some examples of patients that you have had that used it? And, and I would love to hear their outcome. Um, well, I think it, it's very personal. Uh, so if I were to say, if we were to think about biting into a juicy lemon and you were to imagine that the texture, maybe even the sound of the lemon and the, um, the way that that feels, what might happen in your body? Some people might salivate, you know, when you're imagining that, that juicy lemon. So these pictures and symbols like this have physiological byproducts. And that's what imagery is really all about is these physical byproducts. Now, let's say you were allergic to lemons. Well, then you might not salivate just seeing that picture, you know, could cause an immune response. So Depending on who we are, we're very much using imagery to tweak a physiological response or develop a belief in a medication that's in our own best interest. So, for example, one woman was referred to us at Getting Well, and she had she should have responded really well to chemotherapy, and her oncology team sent her to us because she was declining. And she had the a type of cancer that would have just been a perfect match for this chemo. Um, so when we spoke to her, it was clear that she really loved her doctor. Um, she had done the research. She believed in her treatment. She was excited to get going with it. But when we asked her to draw um, a series of pictures of herself receiving chemo, the tumor was black. 
and the chemotherapy was colored black. So we could see that subliminally, subconsciously, the chemo in the, was the same as the, it was like poison for her. So we worked with her and she came up with an image for the chemotherapy that was more conducive to healing. And so when she practiced with this image and this really relaxed setting that she created for herself about three times a day, her limbic brain, which is which is where all this is happening. The limbic brain doesn't distinguish imagination from reality. Okay. So if you are imagining yourself on that beach scene, you're biochemically, it's as if your body's really there. So when we use imagery in this way, she's imagining this chemotherapy as being something profoundly effective, then it can actually biochemically change the way the body's perceiving or believing what it's believing about this medicine. And so she did great after that and all was well. Mm, Right. It's such a powerful example. I mean, the power of our mind is just incredible. Now, I wanted to ask you about the danger of living with trauma in our lives, because most of us do have some sort of trauma. And so I was wondering how we heal past and even present traumas? Well, fortunately, there's a lot in the media about this now. Don't you agree? Yes, definitely. Yes. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities for people to read, um, to get expert assistance. And it's not something that it's something to, again, to be directly addressed. Some one of the byproducts of trauma, as we know and recognize, is this kind of hopelessness and wishful thinking. So we the combination can be particularly rough because we may not actually take action to get help for the trauma. We might think, oh, my A1C is not so bad. It'll 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 be fine. Everything will be great. My blood pressure is not a problem. Everything's going to be okay. So there can be this kind of cheap optimism that can accompany that because we don't want to be stressed, quote unquote. So often people, when we think about trauma, the very thought of dealing with it feels highly uncomfortable. Um, That's a conversation people aren't just like ready to have. So (laughs) it's wonderful to to part, be your own best friend. And really put an arm around yourself and give yourself the gift of being able to tell your story with someone really compassionate and caring who has the background in understanding the biological foundation of trauma, how trauma seeds, how it changes the you know cortisol levels, inflammatory markers, the way the body becomes wired for fight or flight and some of the um, brain changes that occur. So, you know, when folks are working with someone that understands this and just reading the book, reading books by people who know what they're talking about uh, with, with trauma can make the stories and the narratives we carry seem less, there's less shame attached to those. And I think that's what keeps people from from reaching out and dealing with trauma is the sense of shame. So the shame and the you know cheap optimism can kind of go hand in hand. But we we can really send ourselves some good love 
and know that our story in a way is reflected many times over around the world, we can find some solidarity and community in trauma, but then not identify with it. Look for ways to move beyond and really heal. So really quickly, what if you had a trauma in your childhood and you did bury it and you really don't think about it? I mean, is that still affecting your body and your health? Not necessarily. It depends. I mean, mean, when we have a general question like that, we would want to know what does the person want to know about the trauma? How does it show up for them? What are their, what are their immune markers? What are their physical health challenges? In other words, what's showing up for them in the here and now? The idea isn't that everybody needs to go scouting around, you know, looking for things that they may not remember because the body keeps the score. So we can look to the body to kind of tell us what we need to know. And we don't even have to remember. Um, Recent findings show that if we had a lot of trauma, some people only remember a handful of events and there'll be all kinds of things that they simply won't have access to. So the idea that, oh my goodness, you have to remember everything in order to heal everything, that creates stress. But we can actually work with what the person is experiencing here and now. How do they respond to facial expressions? You know, the traumatized brain sees neutral facial expressions often as angry or threatening. So we can work with that, work with reframing so that way your person's not being triggered all day long, working at learning to reinterpret facial expressions, learning to feel safe. So many times people with a trauma history, there's a sense of underlying chronic anxiety. And so learning to really feel safe is foundational. So We don't just, there's no blanket answers. It's very individualized and it depends on the story and what's showing up in their present life. Are they conflict avoidant or are they fighting with everybody? (laughs) So looking for these things, we can really address the way trauma manifests from the biological measures with, you know, our serological measures in the labs or how it's showing up for us in our relationships. Okay. Got it. The danger though of living with these traumas, I mean, is it that we do get these diseases like cancer and autoimmune and all these other things if we don't deal with our traumas? Well, no one is saying, I think we should be really clear. No one is saying that trauma causes any of these diseases. Um, No one is saying stress causes any of these diseases. There's a difference between causation and correlation. So these things have been correlated they're not causal. So that's just super important to know, you know, there's plenty of people who have high stress lives and who have had a lot of trauma and they'll be 103 and they'll outlive all of us. So this isn't causation. Okay. But it's correlative. Does that make sense? It it definitely does. And I'm glad you went over that. Absolutely. Yes. Cause we don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. We don't want people going around thinking, because it wouldn't be true that, oh, you know, there's cancer because I have trauma in my history. Not necessarily at all. I mean, there's environmental toxins and things that our bodies are dealing with that we didn't have to deal with 200 years ago. There's all kinds of physical measures that are causing illness and disease today that don't have anything to do with trauma. So it's we don't want to conflate those. 
I think the important thing is to just ask how we're feeling about ourselves and our lives and let that guide us to better ways of being and feeling. If we're short-tempered all the time, we can really look at that. So if we're feeling that, you know, everything is a stressor, we can look at that. Um, so when trauma shows up for us, when you're asking about it, yes, it can show up, um, you know, these biological measures with increased cortisol, increased inflammatory markers, but we can also reach into those three C's. We can look for agency and exercise our agency so that we can have active hope. We've talked about cheap optimism, but when we have this active kind of hope, we can actually learn to get the parasympathetic nervous system back on board. We can start learning to feel safe and to have more loving, nurturing relationships. So when we partner with someone who might be helping us through these challenges or traumas, who understands these things, it can really give us a healing format to make a list of goals that we want to achieve for, for these feeling states and find a roadmap to achieve them. I love that active hope. That's a good one. <laughs> That's a keeper. Yes, it is. It's the active type of hope that we're looking for. It's based on taking action in our own behalf. And I think that's what the research is distinguishing. We've got great work from Long at Harvard showing there's just such a big difference between believing the future will be better, you know, this kind of optimism versus taking action in one's own behalf. Mm -hmm. And so those are two very different things. Absolutely. And that's such good advice. I wanted to ask, is there anything, any last advice you would give to someone who is undergoing cancer treatment or even has finished with cancer and, and just are trying to move on with their lives? Uh, well, we can use any of these crises as an opportunity to savor the moment. At the end of the day, life is unpredictable. We say in our groups at the Cancer Center that we could have a cure for cancer tomorrow, but there's still the number nine bus on a harmless Thursday afternoon taking us out when we least expect it. So it's the tornado at your door. It's lipstick on his collar. It's the diagnosis of a child. Um, life is incredibly unpredictable. And so when the unthinkable happens, we are called to this higher form of consciousness to reevaluate the meaning in our lives and the direction we're, we're traveling. And so when we pause to do that, to take note, to, to reflect, to see where we're at, we can savor what's around us in the here and now. We can savor the moment and we can plan uh, for what we might like to experience tomorrow. But just bringing it home to the present moment is something that we all need more of what's happening right here, right now, and how we can appreciate the gift that of life. And that savoring the moment has chemical byproducts that actually lower the harmful substances we've been talking about. Uh, that's Perfect. Perfect way to end. Now, are you ready for random round? Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. 
Oh, being in nature. The last show you binged and loved. Oh, The Crown. I'm ready for the next next season to come out. <laughs> when you're feeling afraid, what do you do? You know, that's a really good question. Um, if it's if it's a normal kind of fear, I'll get really still and do some breathing methods, diaphragmatic breathing and some imagery. So if it's a normal kind of fear, if it's an emergency situation, you know, (laughs) that's a little bit different, but yeah, if it's regular fear, breathing saves me. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? I would choose Lawrence Lachon. He was the grandfather, is considered the grandfather of mind-body medicine. And back in the 50s and 60s, he worked with a group of, of cancer patients who were, they were given like three months to live. So any chemo or treatment was considered palliative only. And with these individuals, he wasn't working with them to extend their life. He was just trying to work with their way they saw themselves in their family situation, their their whole way of being to see if these next three months could be fulfilling for them as individuals. And I'm oversimplifying, of course, his elegant and scientific approach by by leaps and bounds here. But the long story short is these people stopped dying. Hmm. And Lawrence Lachon was on our advisory board at Getting Well, but I saw him at a conference in the 90s and some of these people were still living. And Lawrence Lashawn has passed away, but he was amazing in the work that he did uh, and continued to do up until his death. And his book, I highly recommended it's Cancer as a Turning Point. So that's the guy I'd pick. Uh, thank you. What is your favorite go-to snack? Oh, this is just boring. I just love nuts. I'll just grab any kind of nuts as a snack. (laughs) I'm big on nuts too. Yeah. (laughs) What's one simple thing that brings you joy? I love walking with my husband and my dogs on the greenway here by our house. What's on your nightstand? Oh, this is a downer, but it's true. And it's actually not such a downer because there's some good uplifting stuff in it, but it's titled The Trauma of War. (laughs) So what a book to have on your nightstand. I know I should have changed it out before you asked me this question, Um, but it's a book on using imagery. Actually, it's on using imagery to recover from trauma. Oh, perfect. What's your favorite form of exercise? Hiking in the mountains. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Actually, that's my dad. Um, He's going to be 87 and I'm just so grateful for his, his, he's amazing and his vitality and his intellect is, is really something we still call him for advice regularly. So we're so happy he's, he's with us. So fortunate. How can people find you and learn more from my website? Perfect. And I will put that in the show notes. Brenda, thank you so much. This was such a valuable conversation. I know it's going to help many. I really appreciate your time. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, 
The sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.